Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Our guest today is the one and only Vicki Hamilton, music business legend uh, and also author and I believe self-publisher, if I'm correct. Yes, yes. That's, that's a huge thing as well. Uh, for Appetite for Dysfunction, an incredible book. Uh, as you can see, I got wow. about three-quarters of the way uh, through, and I have the sunburn to prove it. I was out by the pool <laughs> reading this. Uh, it, it's quite a book. And uh, I, I particularly loved it a lot because um, it just sort of uh, paralleled a lot of stuff. I lived through two at the same time. You were definitely revolving in the same orbit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, I, and I have to m mention there was uh, a few years back, I did this thing where uh, I used to be pretty big time, big time, uh, active, shall we say, uh, magazine writer in, in the music biz world. And I just had all these magazines piled up everywhere. And I go, what happens when I have a heart attack and they move me to the home? What am I going to do with this mountain of paper? So I went through and really, you know, cut it down. Just kept the stuff I was in, the stuff I really loved, got rid of everything else. And so I was also looking through it all, and a lot of memories were coming up. And I found all the, uh, the magazines where the big Guns N' Roses uh, thing happened at Music Connection and the big controversy. When Music Connection was by no means a controversial magazine, but that's sort of when it hit our orbit that one time. And the thing I couldn't find, and it bummed me out so much, was the letter Axel wrote back to the magazine where he just ranted and raved and hated this and hated that. And we screwed. And, and then the last, and the last paragraph, he says, but Screaming Lord Duff is okay. Yeah. And I was like, that is the cool. And I couldn't find it. And I, when I saw it here, I was just so delighted. I was like, I don't have to look for it anymore. But there, yeah, there's so many things. And, and another thing. Yeah, we'll have to get you a first edition because then you can actually read it. It's like uh, it, it's, it's a full bleed in the first edition. So. Yeah, I I know I was to be aware of some some boo boos in there. It was not that bad. I've read books uh, from some of my friends that were the published edition that had more goofs in it than this. Oh, cool. So uh, yeah, this is this, yeah. There's a thousand happens. of those. I printed them for a book tour through the Midwest and then Create Space sent my books to Hawaii so I never even had the books for the book tour so uh, I have a thousand of these that I'm kind of like uh, using as promos. Does that mean therefore that this is not actually out yet in the stores? Oh no it's out. Well you can buy a first edition on Amazon but there's a thousand of those. Okay so wait so there's an edition after this already? Yeah, yeah. I get you I get you I get you. So this is just the one you made first, and this is the one you uses the promo on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, makes perfect sense. Uh, another thing I liked about it, just for me personally, is you and I are pretty close in age, and uh, all, all the stories of you growing up, uh, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't even kind of comprehend what it was like in those days, growing up through the 60s and the 70s, uh, if you were into music. And uh, if you were uh, trying to do something a little different in, and in a smaller town and in a smaller place. Uh, and uh, the fellow who wrote the uh, foreword for my book, Cheetah Chrome, he's exactly my age. And his book goes through all that, too. And it's just it's fascinating to see the parallels. Right. Uh, and I can just imagine trying to get things going. You talk about the first bands you were managing were from your hometown. Yeah. And uh, trying to get that off the ground. Uh, did it seem like you were uh, fighting an uphill battle at those times? Um, 
Yeah, I felt like a big fish in a small pond there. And then when I got to L.A., I felt like a little fish in a big pond. So. Definitely what happens. Yeah. I mean, I'd almost like to go through this kind of like band by band. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, the, the story is incredible because you you really try to make it as a manager and you hone in on a band that's obviously got something different and going to happen, uh, starting off probably with Motley Crue. And then... Uh, you know, you get them all the way up the ladder, everything's ready to pop, and then they move on to, to bigger management. Well, to be fair, they already, I was a management consultant for Motley Crue. I, you know, was not their manager, so I worked for Alan Kaufman, who... But, I, I mean, I yeah. admit, Alan, he yeah. wasn't really their manager either, because he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, he wasn't right. a music business guy at all. Yeah. And, uh, well, how, how did that work? Like, what was your day-to-day -day with him like? It sort of seems like you guys almost never even talked. Well, only a few times. I did a lot of display merchandising for Motley Crue and, you know, shopped their demo to a few record companies. I, I kind of cut my teeth there, really, you know. So it wasn't like a huge endeavor and they still owe me money. I'm sure they do. <laughs> that, that seems to be a repeating theme yeah, in yeah, the book. Yeah, that, that is a theme in the book. Hopefully you'll recoup uh, on the book itself to pay yes, off all exactly. those people. That, uh, Let's hope so. I've got $30,000 into the book, too. So. Oh, my God. Well, that's mm -hmm. it. That, you know, we'll, I want to get into that as, as well. Uh, we can actually take that sidestep now. You know, you mentioned Iris Berry a lot. and She was the person who was here last. Uh, she kind of self-publishes, but she sort of uh, sidestepped and said, it really is a publishing company, and she has other people backing it and stuff. Uh, whereas you're a solo, a solo effort. Yeah, I was actually going to do it with Punk Hostage too, and uh, you know, because everybody, you know, the major publishers were afraid to like pick it up because they thought that I would be sued or whatever. And um, you know, I got a few offers, but they were so small, I wouldn't like even entertain the idea because for me, the bigger picture is. You know, I want to turn it into a TV show based on the book. So. Oh, interesting. I have, I still have all the Asselary rights. I own everything. So. Okay, so that's a. That's I, a good I don't thing. think books sell that well anymore. It's like people just don't read. People don't know? do anything. People don't. People. Uh, thank God, people still go to venues and yeah. shows because you know nobody buys records. Nobody buys. If you can get it for free somehow, somewhere, then you will. Right. Everybody does that. And, uh, but I do feel like people still, maybe more so than records and, and uh, CDs, they still like the physical thing of carrying a book around, opening it up, and I sitting do. down I do, I prefer a book. I mean, I did an e-book and a Kindle, but to me, it's just not as exciting, even though some of the pictures are in color and whatever, so I have that available. <laughs> no, I don't think it's yeah. as exciting either, but I, I don't, and I still don't think it's really crossed that level like, say, music streaming has. I still think people will prefer a book to... Uh, to looking at it on their laptop, yeah, you know, but uh, that could switch at any time. Who knows? Um, well, that's interesting. Uh, you mentioned that you had a hard time getting publishing. It's sort of funny because uh, uh, my book uh, I, I wrote back in the '90s, and uh, when I went around to publishers, I was given some names and stuff of people. Oh, these people do these kind of books, and their response was, "Well, it's pretty good, but nobody knows the people in this book. We can't sell it." Whereas you're the, and they actually, I think, I think one of them said, you know, if you had somebody like Slash or Nikki Six in it, we could sell this book. Right. And that's all your book is. Your book is crammed full of, you know, yeah. super famous people. But yet it's still, now they're worried that they're going to get sued. It just yeah. seems like, how do you win? 
You self-publish. <laughs> That's how you win. Did you self-publish? No, okay. I, I, I'm kind of stubborn that way. Uh, when I very, when I very first moved to Hollywood, I had a recording that I felt the world had to hear, and I started a label and put it out. And it was one of the single worst experiences of my entire life, and I vowed I would never. If I couldn't get somebody to pick up the final step, then I'm no longer going to do it. Right. So, uh, you know, 22 years later. I did that, too, with June Carter Cashin. It was one of the best experiences of my life. So. Oh, what do you mean? I, I don't oh, know about that. You didn't get to that in the book? I don't think I'm there. No, I'm at, uh, where am I? I am at the Salty Dog Cafe. Oh, okay, yes. I managed a band called the Freewheelers who opened for Johnny Cash and June Carter at um, the House of Blues. And, um, you know, after the show, I was like standing at the bar with Tom Petty and Rick Rubin and... Uh, you know, I said, God, I just, like, really love June Carter. She, like, literally, like, kissed, kicked Johnny Cash in the ass. <laughs> like, you know, it was pretty happening. And Rick Rubin at that point said, you should make a record with June Carter. And I was like, yeah, I don't know shit about country music. So, I don't, you know, no, I couldn't do that. And then I was working at Lookout Management at the time. The next day, June, had like, called my office and left me a message saying, Rick Rubin said you should make my record. So... You know, I called her back and I took a meeting with her, still not convinced that I should do it. I mean, you know, she said to me, you know, I just play these little songs with an auto harp. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't even know what an auto harp was. I had to, like, call my niece in Nashville and say, what's an auto harp? And is a fiddle and a violin the same thing? You know, she gave me sort of the 101 on, uh, you know, Nashville instrumentation and... uh I just decided I was going to, like, make the record no matter what, you know, Elliot. Yeah, so I made the, her, you know, I was I was going to try and do it with Lookout Vapor Records where I was working. And Neil Young thought it was a good idea, but Elliot Roberts wasn't into it. And then... Uh, they weren't into doing a June Carter Cash album? No. I'm sort of surprised. Yeah, right. And then I shopped it all over town. Nobody wanted to do it. So because nobody wanted to do it, I decided... I'm going to just start my own record label and do it myself. And uh, I started a label called Small Hairy Dog, and I joint ventured with Risk Records, and uh, it won a Grammy. I'm well, one for one. All right. Well, that, that's amazing. Yeah. So, And did the thing sell? Did it end up being yeah. a good business venture? Yeah, it was a pretty good business venture, but, you know, it's like I ended up selling the rights to Dual Tone Records because... I had, you know, the first record in an option, and during that time period, Johnny Cash was very sick, and then June got sick, and she wanted to, like, make another record, and, you know, I ended up, like, having to, like, sue the company I joint ventured with, because they sold all, stole all the profits, and by the time the lawsuit went through, it was, like, three years later, so I, June asked me to you know, sell the rights to Dual Tones so she can make another record. And she made the record with Dual Tones and, uh, you know, died like two or three months later. So I'm really glad I did that because that was kind of her dying wish to make that second record. So, Wow, that's quite a story. Uh, so once again, you get kind of slapped in the face by people pulling like music business shenanigans. Yeah. And, uh, and I, again, we see where I am in the book. I'm not to the end. I don't know if this is going to come up, but... One thing I was sort of surprised about, at least as far as I am, is that these things keep happening. People, I mean, flat out keep screwing you over. But you, you haven't, at least at this point in the book where I am, haven't really made the statement that it's kind of like uh, women 
or a woman against the old boys club, as Andy Preboy put it in, yeah. in his musical. Uh, is that coming up, or is that are you just take it as as the kind of things that happens to everybody, men or women, in in the Shark Tank of the music business? Well. I think there's something to that Hunter Thompson quote. Of course, you know? <laughs> we all know it. But, um, you know, it's like, I didn't know the rules, so I didn't really know that I was breaking the rules. And, um, you know, I'm still doing music projects. I mean, you do it because you love it. You don't do it because you're going to make a million dollars. You know, I'd like to think that I'm smarter. I'm sober now, too. It's like, I... I'm very careful about how I do business and I still manage to get screwed. It's like, I think when you, you know, think you know everything, you really get the slap in the face. I don't know everything. So, you know, I just roll with it on a daily basis. I think that's true. I, I still have things happen to me that like, okay, that's a new one. You know, that you think you've been through every kind of disaster that can happen and they're still, yeah. they're still being created. As soon created. as you think you've seen it yeah. all, something that is like more mind-blowing than anything you've ever seen <laughs> comes up. It's, so. it's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Well, having asked that, I mean, do you think you had it harder because you're a woman or you just think... Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, especially in the 80s, I mean, you know, I think they had license to treat women badly, especially pre all those uh, sexual harassment cases so uh, I was close friends with Penny Muck right that was an interesting exactly story. that's kind of where the sea sort of turned a little bit you know yeah so, um, yeah I'd get her in but I'm sure she's tired of telling that story I'm sure she probably is <laughs> yeah uh, well people can look it up how is it nowadays have things changed or is it do you still feel it's an uphill battle um, I think it's still an uphill battle. I'd like to think that I've like kicked in the glass ceiling a little bit for girls in the future because, let's face it, women are just better at nurturing. They were born to nurture children, and uh, you know, from a management perspective, I think I did that better than anyone. You know, with these bands, they were basically bands that had no money, nothing, and. Uh, I helped them get to the level where they could be something, you know. But then at that level, some, you know, what we used to call the cigar chompers uh, took over and the just seats. pounded out the big deals, yeah. you know. So, yeah. I mean, did you have a hard time doing that, too? It seems like you've been through all that as well and can do a deal just like anybody else. Um, I'm pretty legally savvy these days, and I negotiate my own contracts up until the very last thing and then I'll turn it over to the lawyer because in the 80s the lawyers made all the money off of me you know it's like I tried to do everything with the lawyers and you know the bills for the law the legal stuff were astronomical crazy. yeah uh, that's an interesting point and uh, with the bands I deal with I I actually read the the contracts myself and don't really send it to a lawyer because like you say it's gonna cost a bunch of money and I sort of learned how to do it early on, just mm -hmm. out of necessity, because I didn't have the money to do it. Um, I, I remember doing a deal with Bill Hine, just like you did, and we were sort of stumped by it. And we're like, geez, uh, we went out and got a six-pack of beer and sat down one night and just figured it out. And right. then went and negotiated it face-to-face -to -face with them and got what we wanted. Right. So it can happen. And I, I encourage bands to just learn how to read a contract. Don't just rely on 
somebody to take care of it for you. It's very good advice. And, you know, I think... Know what you're signing. Yeah, and people, like, are, are kind of, like, uh, put off by it and intimidated by the language and stuff. And, you know, I tell them, I go, these music business lawyers aren't geniuses. It's not like learning how to do heart surgery. Right. I mean, it's, it's a different level of intelligence. It's not that difficult, so. Yeah, I actually was going to go to Pepperdine Law School. My grade average wasn't high enough to, like, do legal stuff. And, you know, I'm kind of glad that I never turned into a lawyer, although I would have probably made the money. It's like, you know, as a lawyer, all you do is sweat over small details, and life's too short, personally, I think, so. Uh, what are you doing nowadays, management-wise? I know you're still in the game, yeah, so who, who are you working with? Um, I manage Diana Meyer. I do a lot of managing consultants, like I do 222, and 222 is going out with me on book tours, and they're going with me to the UK. I'm doing all of Richard Bramson's um, Virgin Money Rooms in September in the UK. What it, what is that? It's like a lounge where they do lectures and things, and um, 222 is going to play. They're really beautiful rooms. You can look them up online. Um, so you, they play music, you do a reading or something? Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds cool. Books, yeah. What kind of band is 222? Um, it's kind of like, gosh, girl-fronted, badass girl drummer, and Dennis is the guitar player, and he, you know... Dennis and Jade have a business where they do sound for film and TV, and they're very music and recording heavy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's kind of like Blondie meets maybe the Pixies or something, but a little more punk rock. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like something I'd yeah, like. Yeah, it's really good. 222band.com. All right. going to look it up. We will. And I have a guy that's interested in backing me as a management company so i'm about to like open up to more interesting mm -hmm. uh and, and management consultant what if i was to hire you how would you be helping me what would what would what would go on whatever you'd want to talk about you know you can hire me by the hour or you can hire me monthly like that you have you know unlimited access to me and whatever you want i mean if you hire me for an hour i like ask you ahead of time what, you what I'm looking about. for. Yeah, what you want to talk about. And, you know, if I don't have the answers, then I will go look it up for you. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think most of the questions I would have is would be, and uh, I think the parts of the business I have the most difficulty with are psychological. Like, what made that human being make that decision that is completely crazy or do that thing that makes no sense? And I, I've been a musician all my life, and there's things that some of these cats do, and I'm like, wait a minute. What would, why would well, someone some do that? some musicians just have fear of success syndrome and do whatever they can to, like, sabotage, sabotage themselves. things. Yeah. Yeah. Either, who knows if it's even willingly, they just can't help themselves Yeah, I, I think sometimes there's a built-in... Uh, Fuck up, switch. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know how to explain it. It's. It's funny because uh, in, in the '90s, I managed a, a band that had a little bit of a buzz, and uh, kind of out of step with time. There was sort of a gl very Bowie-esque glam rock thing at the kind of end of the grunge era, but they were also sort of. Uh, they were all Crowley heads, so there was this like satanic overtone. I think they kind of influenced the early uh, Marilyn Manson in the end. But I thought, okay, here I am. I'm on my way. And in the, 
long story short, it ended up being such a disaster, and the band like just totally crashed and burned, total self-destruction. And I just made the vowel album. I've done a lot of things in the business. I'm never going to do that again. And now that's what I do. It was just a whole like series of coincidences that <laughs> flung me back down that Yeah, that's another that well. thing I like try not to say is I'll never do it. Never, never say never. <laughs> yeah. it's, I've said never many times and not been true. I mean, there were many times that I like close to getting out of the music business completely and then something like would like pull me back in you know I never completely left let's let's go through some of the individual uh, scenarios here in the book uh, obviously I, I mean the one that seems to uh, that inspired the title of course is uh, Guns and Roses and just some of the things that you live through and put up with are almost like I read it and I'm like, how did anyone just like not throw them out in the street and just say, figure it out yourselves? I and mean, how did you continue to just go on day after day with just almost like just bru brutal insensitivity towards you from not necessarily all well, five of was, them? There was one time where I was close to that and Howie Huberman gave me and Jennifer Perry $500 and said, check yourself into a hotel. It's in there. <laughs> so, yeah, I did have those moments and especially when the cops were like, uh, you know, coming in my apartment uninvited and those sort of scenarios. Um, I asked myself why I did that. But, you know, this was a band that the world needed to hear, so... I wanted to make sure right, that it was and happening. And I'd already like been through Motley Crue and Striper and Poison at that point. And I was like, I'm going to be damned if this one isn't going to pay off for me. You know, so it did in a small way. I mean, you know, I got the A&R job at Geffen. and uh, How long were you there? At Geffen? From yeah. From 86, 7 to 92. Okay. So I had a pretty good run there. Yeah. And then you went from there to the your own management company. Is that what I'm remembering? Um, yeah, briefly. And then I went to um, um, Lookout Management, Vapor Records. And then I followed Gary Gersh to Capitol Records. That's right. Yeah. And how long were you at Capitol? I think all in all it was about three, four years maybe. And why did you leave there? I'm not um, at that point yet. Um, he... Uh, got let go so you know they did a whole regime change sure. at capital basically and did you see that coming or was it just not like at all it was like i was ready to sign this band called jack off jill and we had a meeting one day and the next day gary was like gone wow. <laughs> so i don't think he saw it coming either <laughs> yeah i mean some of the things that happen is that you just have no way to prepare and you just got to kind of ride the ride yeah. the tide you, you become a good surfer, you know. It's like you uh, don't know where the wave is coming from, but you're going to ride it when it shows up. <laughs> I mean, you've been through pretty much everything time-wise in terms of all the changes that the music business has seen. Where do you feel it's going now, which is kind of a hackneyed question, but I, I get so many different answers for it, I feel it's worth asking. Um, well, let's face it, it's kind of a YouTube world, you know, for bands. It's like you need to look good, you need to make videos, things that are funny, shocking, uh, or cute, like pet stuff sort of works. Um, 
Yeah, I think the streaming is going to continue. I heard yesterday that Spotify is going to launch like a video department. So maybe it becomes like a new sort of MTV sort of scenario. I mean, let's face it, the Internet's not going away. No. It's going to be, you know, and Apple's like doing something new too. So it's like, you know. It's going to be an internet music world. And, you know, we used to uh, give away t-shirts to sell records. Now we give away records to, to sell, sell t-shirts. So it's, you know. That's a, that's a good point. You know, and you can't, the fact is you can't give or let someone have something for free and then go, oops, we made a boo-boo here. It's going to cost 20 bucks now because it's not going to work. Yeah. And so it's, everybody laments it, but too late to turn back now. It's tough to say Lars was right all along. Yeah. But uh, we have to swallow that and deal with it. But at the same time, you know, that whole thing that happened with Napster, I go into that with my book too. That was kind of the line in the sand where, you know, the, the music industry could have embraced um, the internet at that point and didn't and tried to slam it down. So, you know, in the wake of Napster, when they shut it down, five more Napsters showed up in yep. its place. Had they, like, worked out a deal with Napster, might have been a different day, you know? Yeah. But hindsight is, as they say, you know, a little bit better way to see. Uh, are you? Do you have any plans to do another book? Is there any place else to go? Anything else to say? What do you think? Um, yeah, well, over the last few years, I've probably got at least a good third of a book. <laughs> you know, more um, dysfunctional stuff. But um, I don't know that I'll do that again. You know, maybe, but doubtful. It's like I've written two screenplays and a musical. I, you know, I prefer fantasy over reality. And um, Don't we all? Yeah, I would rather write fictional stuff. Um, like I said, I'm trying to shop the book for a television idea, and I've got, you know, two companies interested already, and kind of stalking Amy Schumer because I would like her to play me in it. Interesting. <laughs> well, so uh, what would that be like? Kind of, uh, you know, one of these shows that has a set beginning and end as opposed to a series like you'd make. Oh, no, I would fictionalize the characters so I could take it wherever. Okay, you so know, it could, it would, it could it run It would on be and based on. on my book, but it would not be my book. Okay. Uh, any biters on that yet? Two. Oh, all yeah, right. So um, putting it into... Uh, television treatment form right now because as the advice of Mark Geiger who said to me, don't shop your television idea until you have it all nailed down otherwise they'll just steal it from you. And, yeah you uh, gotta get it copywritten and all that yeah, stuff right. Yeah so that's what I'm doing Copyrighted, right Copyrighted excuse me. Um, interesting. That's a whole different world I would imagine. Is it do you enjoy it or is it just as creepy as uh, the music business or? Uh, um, you know I go into these things not knowing where I'm going with it. Like when I wrote the musical and the screenplay, I went back to UCLA and like took classes to learn how to do it all. And with writing a book, I had no fucking idea what I was doing and just did it. And um, I had a lot of people that helped me, you know, like Iris and Catherine Truman, two people that you like interviewed. Yep. Um, and Peter Margolis and, you know, the book turned out great. I think, you know, I'm happy with it, and uh, I've been doing book tours and whatever. 
it's great, you know. Well, I'm glad you're digging it. Uh, but again, it, working with people in television, uh, taking those kind of meetings, uh, it, it, what sort of reality is that? Um, it's really no different. It's the same game, just different players. Okay. You know, and just as the record industry collapsed, I see that the television business is collapsing too. You know, it's like um, standard television, you know, I, I would be more inclined to do a deal with Netflix than with like, a, you know, primetime television. Well, I was going to say, there's so many outlets yeah. now with Hulu yeah, and, they're and, all and the looking cable. For, they're all looking for content. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, that's really, there's so much great stuff mm -hmm. to, if, once you, some of these shows you can latch on to and stick with for years. Uh, the quality is amazing. What I find is like some of the shows I get into, the the acting's really good, the concept's really good, they look amazing, but they sort of poop out story-wise after a while. Like yeah. It's just hard to, okay. It's into like the third season and it's like they have nowhere to roll with it. Kind of. So. Or else they get canceled and they wrap it up in some way that makes no sense. Yeah, like I'm a big fan of Nashville and it was like it got dropped from NBC. Coming back. And coming back on, what is it? CMT. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's I was happy about that. I mean, hopefully they'll have another storyline that will. I mean, I hope this works. We'll watch anything if it's, you know, music related. We even, we're even sticking with Dennis Leary's show, which is. Yeah, that's. It's tough. pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but I, I mean, it, it's still so entertaining. You know what? I really me. like Rhodey. You know, I haven't started that yet. Uh, I've only watched two episodes, but I find it really funny. Where so. were you uh, on vinyl? Did you watch that? Um, yeah, I watched it. Uh, didn't love it in the beginning, but by the time the season was done, I was invested in the characters. Yeah, you I know, think I felt it's the like it was way. kind of a music business so Sopranos, and the writers were from the Sopranos, yeah. so not surprising. The thing that bugged me about it was that they took it seemed like everything from you know Led Zeppelin's fourth record to the Sex Pistols and made it one year. Yeah, right. And and, and the there other was a lot thing of is too. Screen. It's like the A and R people on having done A&R, I know that you don't do soul and glam and, you know, it's like you specialize in one market. Sure. And that guy, like, kind of bounced all over the place. I mean, maybe it was like that in the 70s, but I kind of doubt. <laughs> well, he, he was, the you know, he was the head guy. So, you know, yeah. it is feasible that in his departments that it all kind of funneled up to him. And, yeah. But uh, he seemed to be very knowledgeable about everything. And I just don't think anybody is like that. But. Got to be one or two somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Whether they were that out of their minds on drugs, who knows? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe that's what I mean, geared the I mean, in the, the 70s, there was a lot of that going on, I think. Yeah. You know? Well, I don't know how, how different it is now, I suppose, a little bit. Um, well, Vicki, this has uh, been interesting. Anything else you want to cover that I might not know about since you've already pulled out two or three mm -hmm. things I didn't know? <laughs> Maybe there is something we should talk about is that they need to change the laws and relations to how artists get paid and uh you know i mean a 360 deal like commissions everything that a manager would commission and i don't know i just think that there has to be a better legal system where acts and music business people are concerned because nobody can live in this climate you know so it is tough. I, a lot of the bands I deal with, instead of the 360 deal, they do the 50-50 deal, which is, uh, it's funny, if you work the math on it, it's not all that terribly different from an old school 
record deal. It's just that everything's kind of computed out a little differently. It seems like the end results are kind of the same. People are a little more comfortable with it for whatever reason. I think it's a little more transparent, but uh, I don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Yes, it is. But, you know, if it doesn't change, I mean, just like all of America, there's like baby bands and there's, uh, you know, the established bands and the established people are dying. So it's like there's not going to be any middle class in music. You know, there's very few acts that have reached like major success recently. And the baby bands will decide that they'd rather work at McDonald's because they make more money, you know? It's, like, it's an interesting point. I mean, uh, it's a big step to go from, like, playing, say, uh, rooms the size of the Echo to even just rooms the size of the El Rey. Yeah. That's, you know, 400 people more. Well, but I getting think those that, extra 400 first, people is very yeah, difficult. The first 100 people are the hardest. And then, you know than the first thousand it's like it's like if you can draw a thousand it seems like you can draw you know fifty thousand so it's like uh, a booking agent told me that one thing she sees that is difficult is that so many bands now and their agents are just like yeah we're just gonna do the festivals yeah we're not gonna do a tour we're not gonna play venues but and for how a do new you band, build a crowd a, yeah and for a new band it's like nearly impossible to get an agent because agents don't harder than a record deal yeah because they work on a percentage basis, and uh, they don't want to take it on because you know, ten per ten or fifteen percent of nothing is nothing. So yes, it is. You know, like with two two two, I've booked nearly all their shows. You know, are they based here? Yeah. Okay, I gotta go see them. I'm doing a new club. That's something we can talk oh, about. Oh, uh, please tell me all about it. <laughs> it's called um, Found Sound at the Lost Room, and my first one is July 30th. It's next door to the Lost Night in Echo Park. I'm okay, doing... I know what that is. Now that, that opened and closed, or what happened to that place? It opened and then, or was it that Spaceland was booking it and then they weren't booking it? Yeah, and now um, I think that the room that I'm doing is the Lost Room. The Lost Night kind of runs on its own. Right, I know. Um, and when they have like an overspill at uh Echo, then I think they book the Lost Room. Like, they'll be using it for Echo Park Rising and sure. stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm going to do the last Saturday of every month. Okay. And it, I, it'll be, like, three acoustic acts, and then I'm going to, like, showcase one band. And this band is um, Turquoise Noise, who are awesome. So. What kind of band is that? What do you into nowadays? What, what is the, the um, thing that drives you? Well, Turquoise Noise is a bit like The Doors meets The Cult with, like, some Dandy Warhols thrown in or something. They're really good. They write really good songs. Um, my favorite band right now is The Last Shadow Puppets. I'm not, like, an angry person anymore, <laughs> so the hard rock no, doesn't I like, really... I like, the, I like them. Yeah, The Last Shadow... I mean, Alex Turner, Yeah, yeah. my favorite artist, hands down. I love the Arctic Monkeys. I love Last Shadow Puppets. I saw them at the Ace recently. They were amazing. Um, you know, I like Lana Del Rey and Imogene Heap. And uh, there I, aren't a lot of hard rock bands in no. there. It's like, if you sound like Guns N' Roses, don't bother to send me a demo. I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not in the mode of that anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap her up. Uh, thank you for coming over on a holiday weekend. No problem. Interrupting your Sunday. And uh, have a great rest of the week. And thank you for joining the Tone Duff Sessions. <laughs> no problem. Good name. 
Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions. Join us next time when our guest will be Jim Wilson of Motor Sister and Mother Superior, talking about playing with Henry Rollins, Daniel Lenoir, and 21 album shows in London with Sparks.